Well, the rose on your pinstripes in tatters, and your suitcase has seen better days, and the old station wagon looks battered as it sits outside a roadside cafe. Time for you to believe in. And in the small, chilly hours of the morning. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the Eighth Note Sessions. I'm Davin Mullen. And I'm Mike Shamil. And today we are joined by a remarkable individual. <laughs> man, man of many hats and many pursuits. Uh, Lee Stoner. Lee, thanks for joining us. Hello, guys. Hello, Lee. Beautiful. So to, to start off, um, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. There's an old man in Galway who speaks in Irish so pure he's never been heard to say the same word twice. <laughs> I was born in London, England. My family comes out of the Port of London. Um, Thames River, Port of London workers, merchant sailors, stevedores, truck drivers. I started out at 15 unloading frozen Russian timber from Murmansk. And uh, <clears throat> I went on to become a, a truck driver. So I did that. Somehow I went to college, got a university degree and became a journalist. Um, and in the course of my travels, I happened to meet a woman from Buffalo, New York, who was working in a bar in London, and uh, she became my wife, and that's how I got to Buffalo. Look Wonderful. at that. Look at that. Wonderful. Your, your travels have taken you, uh, I don't know if you've been to every continent, but certainly... Uh, I have, except yeah. Antarctica. I, I was going to say. Um, What's stopping you from Antarctica? Nobody offered me a ride. <laughs> Fair enough. You should see I did work with a woman who had been to Antarctica. Ah, oh, that had to be cool. Yeah, yeah. And, and cool, these, as you could say. Yes, very. To, to say the least. And, and these days you can be found in this beautiful manuscript museum. Yes, indeed, the Carpelli's Manuscript Library Museum. It's a beautiful location. Thank it you. is indeed. I realize I've been saying that wrong for like my entire life. I've been calling it the Carpel's Manuscript Museum. As like Carpel Tunnel. Like Carpel Tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Carpelli's, I believe, um, Central European. Okay. It sounds Greek to me, but uh, there's quite a lot of them. They're, they're, they're a colorful family. There's one of them is uh, now a Bitcoin millionaire. Wow. <laughs> okay. And uh, back in the good old days of Elliot Ness and the Untouchables, hmm. one of them robbed a gold train. A couple robbed a gold train. He was a gangster. It's marvelous. Marvelous. Yeah. So you, you can be found in, in this beautiful museum with it, its own colorful history and, and very often in Nietzsche's. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of regaling audiences and, and, and charming audiences with, <laughs> with older, uh, older songs. Oh, the traditional stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's why I, I first saw you and I was really, I was taken by the, the totality of your, your performance because uh, for the viewers at home, if you can't tell, Leah's a natural storyteller um 
just uh, I could hear you read the phone book kind of thing. <laughs> and you would always sort of introduce these songs um, and, and just say a few words on the history and, mm. and, and what they meant and mm. kind of give probably an uneducated audience a, a bit of insight onto it. Um, what what drew, drew you to, to traditional music? Um, my mother was a singer, so I grew up in a house where I considered it perfectly ordinary and natural for adults to burst into song. Um, Wait, you mean it's not? <laughs> I feel like my daily life is like a, a musical. <laughs> I find many musicians come from musical families. Go figure. Uh, go figure. And um, singing was compulsory at school. I mean, you had to do it whether you were any good at it or not. You were punished if you made up the words for yourself and didn't sing <laughs> properly. So um, I learned a lot of English traditional songs and sea shanties when I was in um, primary school. That's 5 to 11, age 5 to 11. And uh, when I was a teenager, I got into um, blues, and uh, particularly Chicago blues. And this is American folk music. I mean, it, this is working men describing their conditions. So it's, 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 it's the same thing. I like ballads. I like songs that tell stories. What's... Um What's a particularly uh, favorite of yours, of, of the ballad? Oh, God, that's like asking me how many pretty girls I've kissed. <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive either way. <laughs> what's uh, maybe instead of your favorite, because that, that is a tough question, what's one do you think that people would be well to do to look into, to learn about in here? Um. Well, the interesting thing about when you get into songs that are like 300 years old is that you can sing them and people understand what happened. It's sort of nothing really changes. Uh, most songs are to do with love and the loss of love or the absence of love. And this thing just repeats itself over the ages. So you can tell these stories over and over again, and they still work. Kind of timelessness to them. It's, it's interesting because in, in your travels as a, a journalist, you've seen some very visceral things. Uh, things which I, I think speak to the, the human experience and kind of complicated, complicated ways. So sometimes they're, they're, with your, your travels in Africa, for example, you, you mm. describe things which, I, I mean, are, are frankly very unsettling. Um, sort of being in close proximity to uh, a mass grave. You've, you've had to interview people who have very recently suffered incredible trauma, mm. but you've also had to write about the sort of you know mundanities of of like business and finance. Mm. Do, do you find that the the sort of timelessness and the continuity of music, mm. this repetition of themes, is that a kind of sanctuary for you? Um, music um, music is very interesting. You find it all over the world at all times, in all cultures. 
And uh, what is what is the point of music? Uh, I heard a neurologist speaking uh, on this subject, and he and she said that it's an established neurological fact that there's something about melody and a particular rhythm that the human physiology locks into and it is capable of producing an exalted state like a higher form of consciousness it's a it is if you like you can approach the divine through music um, and um, the early Christian church in its early days was very much all singing and all dancing and then the Vatican decided that dancing was leading to fornication mm. so they introduced kneeling instead I don't know about you guys but I've always found kneeling to be a far more convenient position in which to fornicate instead <laughs> yes. yeah dancing there's too much going on really uh, uh, well the, the intention was there if, if not the desired effect right I mean choose <laughs> I could say things, but I'm just going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> you have freedom of expression in this country. True, but not without consequence. Not without consequence. And I, I think that's a hard-learned lesson for a lot of people, yeah. unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, yeah, the, we, we live in sort of remarkable times right now because things seem to be on the existential decline in, in, in some ways. Do you, do you think that's true, though? I don't really understand what you mean by existential decline. Well, we have, uh, you know, the proliferation of, uh, of drugs, of guns, uh, the climate seems to be in kind of a downward spiral. Uh, seems to be. Definitely is. And there you go. That's existential. You mean a threat to existence? Uh, to, to human existence. I think the Earth okay, will still be here. What you mean. Yeah, the Earth will still yeah. be here. I'll be fine. Uh, um, <laughs> it's been in a mess ever since people started recording history. If you look. All right. Look at the book of Exodus. We recently had a big biblical exhibit in here. Mm. And in the book of Exodus, which is the history of Moses leading the Jews out of Egypt into the promised land, what was then called Canaan. And Moses died before they reached the promised land and they were led into Canaan by Joshua who proceeded on the orders of God to launch a campaign of genocide and ethnic cleansing against anyone who didn't obey Jewish law, whether they were Jewish or not. If you happened to work on the Sabbath, you got stoned whether you were Jewish or not. They sacked six cities, massacred everybody. This is the start of the record of the history of the Jews. I now understand that none of this has any archaeological backing. There is no archaeological evidence to support the existence of a large Jewish population inside Egypt. So 
Somebody made that one up. Why would you make that up about yourself if you didn't do it? We massacre people. We kill children. Aren't we fun? <laughs> but and it's going on today. This is Palestine. And there are people who say that they have the right to live there because God gave them that land. And they're not displacing any Arabs. Even the Jews are divided now on the question of Zionism. And then to just to draw a clear distinction, because uh, in in the U.S. discussions of Judaism and Israel are often conflated. We're we're talking about Israel as a nation on on the world scene, not specifically the the faith of Judaism. Right. It's a nationality. Yeah. It's a religion. It's many, many different things that covers a very, very wide range of cultures, languages, and people. It's, um, it, it's interesting. We were, in our pre-interview conversation, we were talking about uh, the, the rise of Christian fascism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why, why is that something that seems to be <coughs> sort of sneaking in through the back door? Peculiarly American. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I was um, surprised when I started to really get into America to discover that for such an advanced, such a technologically advanced nation, um, the church still holds a, a, a powerful sway over the political um, sphere. Um, Europe now is mostly a secular society and uh, we don't have anything approaching these mega churches or these televangelists. Uh, but if you look back again at the history of this country, it wasn't just the Protestants who came over here. You also got all the Satanists and the weirdos and the witches. That's right. You have a church of Satan in this country. I do. And sure. Second. And they're fighting for, for more rights than the Christian church. Uh, <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. In some ways. Um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a weird situation. Yeah, it, 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 the, the, the rest of the world kind of looks at this and thinks, these Americans are crazy. Yeah. I mean, I mean there's sort of a... You know, and, and to be clear, the, the stances we're talking about with religion, politics, and all that, these mm. aren't music as arts official endorsements. These are like Shamil, Devin Mullen, and Lee Stoner as individuals speaking in that capacity. But the, the foundation of this country, I mean, to, to your point, Lee, it's, the, these were basically religious extremists who... They were considered to be religious extremists. At, at the time. And they, <coughs> they weren't cogent with with society in England and... I was in Rotterdam once for Thanksgiving. The American ambassador got up and thanked the Dutch for all the hospitality that they'd given to the pilgrims who were in Holland before they sailed to England and came over the Atlantic. And uh, the Dutch, I was informed afterwards by a Dutchman that those particular pilgrims were so unpopular in Rotterdam, they were considered to be so extreme <laughs> in their views that the Dutch put them to sea in a leaky boat that was supposed to sink in the North Sea and drown. 
and they sealed the dock off that the ship sailed from because they didn't want them back again. It's it's a difficult thing because part of, particularly with with far right and the the intersection between politics and, and faith in that way, it's very heavily reliant on a, a narrative of self persecution. Self persecution? Well, not not self persecution. Well, I mean, kind of. We're, we're all sinners, and the you know we can't. Um, oh, you're talking about the Catholic faith. Well, Catholicism, but also, I'd say, uh, certain certain sects in the evangelical movement. It's, it's very much an us-versus-them mentality. The the world is against us. We are warriors of God, and we, we oh, have yeah, to... Oh, yeah, that's tough. Yeah, you know. the Church of England, you don't get anything like having to go to confession at the age of 12 when they know that you've got dirty little secrets that you don't want to talk about and making you confess to carnal desire. So, no, we don't... We're, the, the, the Church of England is very much Catholicism light. We get all the salvation, but none of the guilt. Reminded of that none one. of the shame. Because there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Yes, and yes, yes. Christianity is big on shame as yeah, a tool. Yeah. Reminded of that one scene from uh, The Meaning of Life. Yeah. Monty Python. Yeah. the movie. <laughs> You know, whatever. I mean, if, 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 we're, if we're talking controversy, <laughs> you might as well throw that in there. Why not? So we've come full circle in, in, a, in a former church now, manuscript museum. We've gone everywhere from journalism to religion back to Monty Python. So, so I suppose we should uh, talk about money next, then, for, for breaking the social taboos. Money? Yeah, money. How um, much you pay me for this? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, you're, you're doing this for the, the, the privilege of the exposure. Oh, whatever. For, yeah. the, for the privilege of getting my face on a screen somewhere. Yeah, right. You're going to be a star. <laughs> <laughs> Just bring the feds back down on me, I tell you. Yeah. Um, the part of your background is uh, in post World War II England. Yeah, that's where I grew up. Um, you, you described it as. In, in sort of positive ways as being a socialist at the time. And, and that's, that's very much... A it was very space. much an optimistic time because, you know, the, the, everyone had been... I, my family got bombed and rocketed for five years. So everyone had PTSD. There were an awful lot of fistfights amongst men. I mean, it was, very, it was a very bangy, bangy place. But the feeling was things are getting better. You know, I was born, there was food rationing and stuff like that. And that went out in the 60s and suddenly people had money to spend. And the invention of the teenager in the 60s, someone who was living at home with their parents and going out to work and having a wage packet and money to spend on pop records and uh, clothes and stuff like that. That was a new phenomenon. So and Now we're, we're kind of seeing a regression of that. That's been going back since, in my experience, the, 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 that really came to an end during the 70s. Uh, the swing to the left by the end of the 60s. In the 68, there were student riots in Paris and Munich. And uh, there were student strikes. I don't, I, don't know, I don't think there was a riot, but there were certainly student strikes in England. And uh, during the 70s, again, you know, coal miners wanted to be paid as much as brain surgeons. Uh, 
it was a kind of everybody wanted more. And there were so many strikes. And uh, then with the 80s, there, there, there was the swing to the right with Margaret Thatcher and wrote Ronald Reagan. And it's been going towards the right ever since for the past 40 years. Generally, conditions, I think, for ordinary working people have gotten worse. And conditions for the ruling class have uh, pretty much maintained themselves. It's not gotten better. This is the thing. I mean, mm. Prince Charles and that lot, their fathers, the men who raised them, ran the British Empire. But by the time Prince Charles finished Cambridge University, there wasn't an empire left to run. So Prince Charles and his buddies had to stay and run England. And in order to maintain their standard of living, they couldn't bleed the poor Indians or the poor Africans. So they bled the poor British proletariat. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. Do you, you know, the, the dominant clerk seeks to hang on to its position at all costs. The middle class seeks to either join the upper class or to overthrow it, and the working class just gets done. Do you, do you feel that um, political discourse in the States, not, not so much at the individual level, because I, I talk to you know, people when I'm out and they're, they're much more freely speaking Mm. Than, than you'll see in, in media or, mm. or journalism. Yeah, but sure. How, what do you make of how fixed it is? How, uh, a discuss, like, you, you won't hear the word proletariat. You, you won't hear anything regarding Karl Marx or even the utterance of socialism is itself a pejorative term mm. used to discredit candidates and, and movements. Yeah, yeah. And what, um, what do you make of that? Oh, I don't even want to start on that one. Quite <laughs> um, no, I've got, I've got nothing useful to contribute on that. I really don't. It's a cultural thing, partly born out of the Cold War with uh, the Soviet bloc and that kind of totalitarian communism. Um, socialism for me consists of a, 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 an agreement on the general level that able-bodied buggers like me who are capable of looking after ourselves were helped by the state when we were young. The state educated me. The state gave me free dental care. The state gave me free medical care. I used to get free milk at school. The state helped me to grow up, so in my earning years, it's right that I pay taxes to support the next generation and to support the preceding generation in their old age because they helped me when I was young. Socialism is decent education, decent health care, decent housing. That's all, enough to eat for everybody. If you're brighter, and you want to make more for yourself, you can. But you'll pay taxes. And everyone seems to... Well, most, that's how most of the developed world lives now. 
Do, do you feel like America is in a, a kind of knowledge bubble? Um, what do you mean by knowledge bubble? I suppose we, we, I, I feel like we don't look outside our, our borders very often. Um, let's face it, most Americans never leave the borders of America. You can go to Canada, you can go to Mexico, but if you want to go anywhere else, you've got to cross the Atlantic or the Pacific. Most people don't have either the time or the money to do that. And so you're not exposed to foreign cultures in the sense that you can get close enough to smell them. And to see, do they work? You only know what you see on a screen. So there is this insularity that America is the, the biggest and the most important country and the best country in the world. And it does lead to... Um, a lack of cultural relativism and, and the realization that there are other ways to live than this. You know, there are other ways of doing it. What do you think might be, um, supposing one of our audience members wins the uh, lottery or something, mm. you know, and, and has a travel budget, mm. where, where do you think would be an instructive place to, to go and learn? Puh. If you've got all the time and the money to travel, I suggest you get... You just... The important thing is to go on your own. Yeah, if you travel with somebody else, you'll have a reference point. But if you travel alone, you don't have a reference point. You're naked out there and you are forced to rely on the on the kindness of strangers, if you like. Sure. You know, and uh, you will find it's a very life-reaffirming experience that pretty much everywhere you go, there are bad people, sure, but most people are good. Most people will help a stranger in need. And this is, this is what people do. We are empathetic towards each other. doesn't matter what we look like. You know, we feel the same. And most people are aware of this. Beautiful. I think that's a great idea. Just get get out there and, and, get and really really do the thing. Yeah. Mm. Go and have an adventure. Anywhere. Don't go to Nigeria. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But he I'm he sorry, brought that Nigeria. up in the, in the pre-interview conversation. I, I, I didn't mean that. I, uh, I, I brought up how he was on a um, virtual stream during the pandemic, mm. uh, during the lockdown portion of the pandemic, because the pandemic is obviously still here. Um, where he was at Nietzsche's uh, performing uh, on like a Facebook live stream mm. and um, the gentleman running it was asking him about some of his experiences traveling and he had a song about traveling to Nigeria and an, an unfortunate experience that he had there. Um, and that kind of leads me into uh, the question I have to kind of intersect um, the two subjects of traveling and journalism and kind of you know, mm. come full circle a little bit for a moment. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the traveling you've done, how has that influenced the way you approach your journalism when you're asking questions, when you're picking people's brains? How has that sort of uh, mold your ability as a journalist? Hmm. Um, pretty much every writer that ever... 
most writers get material from travel because it gives you a, a fresh perspective on the world as opposed to where you happen to live all the time and that's your day-to-day -day existence. So it, it provides you with new ideas, different music, different scents, different colours, just different people, different senses of humour. Uh, so, yeah, it really... There are the writers who sit at home and who never go out and who make it all up in their head. And I wasn't one of those. I basically got my material from other people in the real world. You don't have to make this stuff up. Definitely a, a more accurate way to um, convey things. Because, I mean, it's very easy to imagine the way things are, but once you've kind of seen it for yourself, um, you know, you obviously have the, the tools to make a more complete picture. What is known picture. as getting down to the real nitty-gritty, yeah. I believe. <laughs> now, how do you think that um, this sort of plays into your music? Because I want to now sort of segue into uh, your music as an artist. Have you sort of taken that, that world view that you have and infused it into your music? Um... I wanted to write and to travel. Um, I lacked the wherewithal, I lacked the means. I couldn't afford to travel, I had to have a job. So I had to find a job that somehow paid me for writing and traveling. Um, and I found that writing about trains and ships and planes got me rides on them because ah. you get close to whatever subject you write about. So that was the start of that, and that took me into places that I never thought that I would see, and, 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 and into doing things that I never would have imagined if I just stayed at home and worked in the hardware store. Uh, so yeah, get out there, get on the road. The trains are hiring, you know, conductors. There you be, go. Be a train conductor. There you go. That definitely would get you from place to place. It gets huh? you from place to place. And, it, and you meet travelers as well. And they're not like stay-at-homes. They have a different perspective. When you're out traveling and you're talking to strangers, what's one of the things that you love asking them? How do you say, fuck off, you Austrian wanker, <laughs> in your language? <laughs> in Hungarian, Gamisumalaka in Greek. It's Vafer queer on earth bronle in French. Or uh, there are many. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love personally picking people's brains. I'm, you know, I'm the kind of guy that, like, at the grocery store, you know, if I make eye contact with someone for more than three seconds, I just start yammering to them. That's one of the. That's one of the things that I like about Buffalo is that strangers talk to each other. Yeah. And it's considered to be perfectly ordinary. Yeah. I think we took a sort Manhattan of a hit of that during like the that. pandemic. Londoners aren't like that. No. No. Stranger talks to me in London. I, what do you want? <laughs> yeah. yeah, in Buffalo, you know, that's always been one of the, the things that has always attracted me. Because I, you know, I started off in the city, moved to the burbs, mm. and then moved around a bunch and came back to the mm. city. 
And that was one of the things I really missed about this yeah, place is yeah. just, you know, you can go anywhere and people just strike up conversations and I have with you. And the weirdest conversations with yeah. strangers. Yeah. It's yeah. fun. We, it, yeah, we like Buffalo. Yeah. You know, one time someone uh, stopped me and they wanted to know when the next bus was coming and they didn't have a phone to, to look it up. Yeah. And then it just got into this weird conversation where he thought I was related to Mark Zuckerberg and I had explained to him that I'm not. But I, I walked away laughing going, that was a very Buffalo conversation. Yeah. We got a lot of them in here. My favorite was the guy who came in and he wanted to tell me about, did I know the Queen of England has a unicorn in her flower garden? <laughs> like, thought, did he mean like a statue or a real living No, a real live unicorn. I thought, okay, now is the time to start moving you out onto the porch. Well, thank you for coming in. <laughs> <laughs> we had another one in this morning. I don't know what the hell he was raving on about. Eccentrics. He, he probably saw the unicorn and, you know, just everything unraveled at that point. I mean, oh, no, he was George Washington's grandson or something like that. Oh, sure. Uh -huh. We've got a picture of George Washington and his wife on the wall over there. And he wanted to take a photograph of it. Speaking of the uh, things around the museum, uh, what brought you to working at Carpelli's? Uh, quite simply, I needed a job. And uh, I knew I had met Chris Kelly, who is the director, because he's very active on the local music scene with ah. other bands and things like that. And uh, I first came here about 16 or 17 years ago and stayed for a while and moved on because I needed to do other things. And now I've been back here since September. And I have no plans to go anywhere right now, but you never can tell. Yeah. And, and if someone, just, uh, someone who's not familiar with the museum, and also shout out to the museum for you know, hosting us today, um, what can they find here? I mean, it's a manuscript museum, so of course there's going to be documents, but what makes that so special and different from another museum? Um, rare manuscripts are a part of the art market Quite simply, these documents are the bare bones of history. This is where historians get their information from. Um, it is an academic thing. It's not of interest to everybody. It has to be a minority interest, I will admit. But um, effectively, people buy and sell this stuff at auction. Wow. It's worth money the same way that Oil paintings are worth money. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Carl Pelles has, in the collection in California, a copy of the United States Constitution. Wow. Now, another, another copy of that, I don't know how many copies there are, sold at Sotheby's Auction House in Manhattan last October for $42 million. Wow. The same document previously was auctioned at Sotheby's in the mid-80s when it was valued in the 800,000 bracket. So there's an increment of $41 million over 35 years for doing nothing, apart from keeping a bunch of old paperwork in a drawer somewhere. Wow. Yeah. So could I take like some of my first grade like, uh, like writing homework that's still in, in like the desk in my parents' basement? Do you think I could put that on auction on like eBay or something? And 
you know, sell that for something? Not right now. <laughs> Do I have to wait till I'm retiring? I've told the boss after this interview I'm going to be famous and I'm going to sell him my old notebooks. <laughs> well, like, if there's some lyrics in there, I might buy be buying them. <laughs> <laughs> there are lyrics in there, sure. This notepad with a coffee stand on it. All, all that stuff. Right, you know, oh, the, oh. The Bob Dylan's notebooks are, are worth money. Yeah. Mine aren't because I'm not a famous musician. See, this is where Lee Stoner spilled coffee in Munich on his notebook <laughs> while he was writing about how crappy his train ride was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in Munich Easter 68 for the riots. I was 17 years old. It was very exciting. Water cannon out all over the place. Somebody got killed. Yeah. What what brought you there for that moment? You know, just to to kind of like pick on that for a second. Uh, I had family in Germany. I had an uncle in the British Army of Occupation who went over there and married a German girl. And I was studying German at school. So I got over there and basically by hanging out with my cousin Barbara, who's my age, I learned how to speak good street German. Nice. And how to say fuck off, you Austrian wanker in German. <laughs> now up the striking is fix it. I see there's a trend in your family of, of traveling and, and marrying women from outside of the country and following them to their home. Usually we, we ask for um, advice, not, not, not for me personally, I'm, I'm beyond help, but for, for young folks who are coming up today and hmm. are. I don't know, present, presented with all this. Hmm. Do you have any just words of advice or encouragement or, or anything? Yeah, essentially you can't do anything about it, so, so don't worry about it. It's, these, these are geopolitical forces. You cannot escape. If something goes off and you're there, I'm sorry, you cannot run away. So what you have to do is to concentrate on the small picture, which is that tiny piece of the world that you have an influence over here today. And all you can do is try and make things better for the people who are around you and not worse. If you can make somebody smile, you've done a good thing because you've boosted their immune system. I've heard that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Laughter is even better. Stimulates the thymus. (laughs) Well, we get a lot of that on this show. Yeah. Do you know about the Bombay Laughter Club? No. It's this bunch of geezers in Bombay, Mumbai, Bombay. And they practice a form of hatha yoga. Hatha is, is, is breathing. Hatha, it's the, in, the inhalation and the exhalation. Hatha. And what they do is that they stroll down to the beach and they go, And they do that in chanting. And at the end of it, they say, We are the happiest people in the world. Because we are the healthiest people in the world, because we are members of the Bombay Laughter Club. I love that. Yeah, you can see they're on YouTube. You you, you should catch them. Laughter is infectious. It is. Yeah. And it's a good thing to get infected with. And it's a good thing to get infected. (laughs) There are not many good things, but that is one of them. That is one good thing. Beautiful. All right, and the last thing I have is uh, is. for for folks like us, like Devin and I, who mm. and other podcasters out there, because I know a lot of the podcasters in Buffalo have been kind of slowly forming a community. Um, what are ways we can be better um, 
in terms of like a service to our neighbors and the public with our shows? Quite frankly, I'm in no position to give the podcasting community any advice whatsoever since I know absolutely nothing about it. That's this fair. Is, this is a new media that your generation has exposed. Well, other people are, particularly your generation. This is, this is new technology. You'll do with it what you will. Who knows? You might start a revolution. Preferably not around me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Lee Stoner cult. <laughs> and with that, I'm Bevan Mullen. I'm Mike Shamil. Our guest today has been Lee Stoner, remarkable man. And this is the Eighth Note Sessions. We'll catch you next time. Take a listen to Holloway Joe by Lee Stoner. Well, those lines in your face are getting stronger. Those bristles are definitely grey. And if you linger in this place any longer, somebody just might make you stay. Time for you to believe in Time for you to go And in the small chilly hours of the morning You will sleep by the side of the road And in the small chilly hours of the morning The Eighth Note Sessions are produced by Music is Art. Our co-hosts are Devin Mullen and Michael Shamil. Editing by Michael Shamil. The executive director is Tracy Fletcher. Our program director is Sarah Elizabeth Shaw. You can help programs like this keep going by donating today at musicisart.org. Thanks for listening.